I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, I've got questions for our pandemic guide, as always, Chronicle reporter Aaron Alday, on what we should make of coronavirus cases rising once again in the Bay Area. You've surely noticed it. Perhaps you're experiencing it personally right now as you're listening. For those counting, this is, yes, a fifth uptick of the virus. But how things have changed. On Tuesday, the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said the country is, quote, out of the pandemic phase. In the Bay Area, far fewer people are getting seriously ill. COVID restrictions like mask mandates don't appear to be coming back, and school proms and other spring events aren't likely to be canceled. So what does that mean to you and your decisions on how to live? What does it mean for people who might be more vulnerable to the disease, like parents who still can't get young children vaccinated? Aaron Alday, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me again, Damian. Aaron, let's quickly take a listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci had to say on Tuesday on PBS's NewsHour program. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now. So if you're saying, are we out of the pandemic phase in this country? We are. Aaron, can you translate what Dr. Fauci is saying there and its significance? Yeah, I think it's it's significant just to have somebody in his position who's been so cautious and such an important advisor since the start of this pandemic for him to be saying that we're sort of that we're transitioning out of this pandemic phase, which essentially means we're transitioning out of the crisis. This is not this sort of out of control you know, cases just spiraling up. We don't know what's coming next, like just this this total crisis phase. Um, and we're moving away from that. And we're we're headed into endemic. Now, I think it's key that Dr. Fauci did not say that we are endemic. That's been sort of confusing. And there's been sort of a lot of back and forth on that lately. Endemic is when is basically defined on when you reach a stability. So a virus is here, it's with us, and you can kind of stably count on what it's going to look like. It may be seasonal, it may kind of climb up and down from time to time, but you kind of know what you're dealing with. And we're not really there with COVID yet. We're not quite at a point where we know exactly what's going to happen or, or or cases are going to kind of stay at some stable level. You know, as we see right now, we're clearly in this this upwards trajectory. But it's what what's key is that we're not we're not like in this place of where we need to to respond with like these these really onerous kind of controls, right? We need to do like full stop, all out, try to make this thing go away. That's just that's not our our reaction anymore. So I think that's that's basically what what he was saying. Okay, but today can we say that we are still in a pandemic? I mean, yes, I think because I mean a, a pandemic by definition is a is a global outbreak and you know we're still globally in a pandemic. This is COVID is still a, a global threat. Um, it's this is where it gets complicated because it's starting to become not so much a pandemic for the United States. And so I think it's okay. too soon to call the pandemic over, but it sounds like semantics, but we're just kind of coming out of a pandemic phase or or epidemic phase, which is a local kind of form of of a pandemic. So we're heading out of that in the United States. All right. Let's talk about this uptick in cases. Aaron, I mean, people have seen it. As we were about to start here, I got a message from my daughter's soccer coach saying that he's got the virus. It's not surprising. It seems like everyone does. But why is this one different from the upticks in the past? 
The main difference is we have such like people refer to it as a wall of immunity. So between vaccinations um, and and previous infections, we just have so much built up immunity kind of in our communities now that it's hard for the virus to get in and do a lot of damage, like big, wide scale damage. And when I talk about damage, I'm talking about severe illness and people needing that kind of hospital care, ending up in the ICU and dying. So it's it's largely due to that built-up immunity, and then also due to the the variants that are circulating now, which is, as somebody described to me recently, it's we have Omicron, and then we have the child of Omicron, and then we have the grandchild of Omicron, or sort of the three dominating variants right now. And they're all highly infectious. Each is actually more infectious than, than the earlier, but they're all causing just generally milder disease. And, you know, you want to be careful about that because certainly people can get very sick with Omicron and its, its offspring. I guess. But just for communities as a whole, it just causes much milder illness. So, you know, we're going to see these cases climb. So far, we're not seeing them climb like really dramatically. Like, I don't know if you remember what the Omicron surge looked like, but it was this massive you know, almost straight upward climb in cases like day over day, just just spectacular increases. And we're not seeing anything like that. So we're not seeing that huge spike. We're just seeing sort of a gentle uptick. And nobody thinks that's going to result in a lot of hospitalizations and deaths. All right. I do remember Omicron, Aaron, because I had Omicron. That's right. (laughs) And by the way, have you had COVID-19 yet? I have not. I it's funny because people will say like there's nobody left, but there there are there are definitely quite a few of us that have not had, or at least as far as I know, I have not had COVID um yet. That's incredible. I mean you 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 feels like you're one of the last ones and that by now we would expect our pandemic guide to have personal experience. It does feel that way. And you know what? I mean, obviously I don't want COVID, but I it's at a point where it feels almost limiting to not know firsthand what it feels like. Uh but but you know, the funny thing is I've actually had several colds. I've gotten several colds from my nephew. So I clearly have been like exposed to respiratory viruses in the last uh, couple of years, but somehow COVID has not infiltrated. Well, I'm glad you haven't had it. I do want to talk Aaron about measuring this. I mean, so many people are getting home tests to see if they're positive, and, and we don't see those. How do we know how much disease is out there? And also, what other measures are you more concerned with? So we're definitely not tracking cases as closely as we once did. We're missing a lot of cases due to home testing largely. Um, and, you know, some people just not necessarily bothering with getting tested because, you know, they kind of know what to do. That's that's not advised, by the way. If you think you if you have symptoms, you should at least do a home test. But you know, it's den- it's generally understood that that we're underreporting cases, and potentially by you know three to five fold are we underreporting. But you know what folks tell me is we've never had very precise case counting. It's always because so many people are asymptomatic. It's always been understood that there are a lot of cases that are out there that we're missing, and. Again, the folks I talk to feel like we're testing enough people, like in those lab tests, the ones that get reported, that that we have a good sense of the trajectory of the trends. So we may not know exactly how much, how many cases are out there, but we know when they're climbing and when they're increasing. And we can have sort of an idea of what the prevalence is in the community and how much is out there. So they feel like we're on top of that. And we do have other means of surveillance. We have wastewater surveillance where they look for the virus in our wastewater. And that kind of gives us a little tip off, especially combined with the cases. But yeah, as you pointed out correctly, you know, 
the folks I talked to, they think it's more important at this point to track the severe outcomes, so to track hospitalizations from COVID, to track people in intensive care, and of course, those deaths. The deaths are less useful for tracking because they're so time-legged. So once people are dying, it doesn't, you can't do anything to prevent that. But but the hospitalizations they're seeing as sort of a key you know, data point to to be tracking what's happening out there. And the good news is that that hospitalizations are still really low. They're they're picking up a little bit. Definitely in the last couple of weeks, they've been picking up. So we are seeing some increases, but they're still almost very close to historic lows. And the people in intensive care have been at or below, you know, their lowest points in the pandemic for almost like a month now. So it's, it's you know, the number of people in intensive care is very low at this point. All right, Aaron, I want to take a quick break. When we come back on Fifth and Mission, I'm going to ask Aaron Alday about people's decision-making in this new uptick of the virus right after this. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth and Mission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, joined by Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday. We're talking about this latest swell. I'm using your word, Aaron. I know you don't want to use the word surge anymore of the coronavirus. Cases are going up. Talk to us about the decisions people should be making, our behaviors changing. What about uh, big events? What about some of the big spring and summer events coming up? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I should note that that swell is not actually my word. That's uh, Dr. Sarah Cody, the Santa Clara County Health Officer, very deliberately said to me she's referring to this as a swell and not a surge because she thinks we do need to to talk about it differently. But yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'm hearing from our, our health experts is they they recognize that you know human humans need sort of interactions and they need you know, we have certain events in our lives and certain things that are important to us, and we need to have those. And they needed to go away for a couple of years because this this COVID was so serious and and they had to kind of do everything they could to stop it. But now they're recognizing that we're in a phase where we need to start, you know, doing a different risk-benefit analysis. And that means that we might have to, you know, we, we have to make some choices about what's important for us. And that's going to differ from individual to individual from community to community. Um, but it means like they're saying specifically, you know, high school proms should happen. They should take place. High school graduations should take place. People with little kids, even little kids who aren't vaccinated, should get together for play dates. They should have those kids spend time with other little kids. So, you know, people should be spending time with one another. And, you know, the important thing is that one, recognizing that those things have to happen, that it's just part of being human beings that we need those. And also recognizing that we do have the tools and the information now to do those things safer, like maybe not 100 percent risk free, but we can make decisions that are that are safe based on our needs. So, you know, one example that someone pointed out to me is is graduations, you know, a high school graduation held outside, probably everybody should just go mask-free now. That would be fine. It would be totally acceptable. If that's not an option, then you can kind of maybe all the students wear masks in the audience, but they take that mask off when they cross that stage for that big, you know, powerful moment when they get their diploma. Similar with proms. Everybody I've talked to, you know, we had recently a big outbreak of coronavirus from a prom that was held in San Francisco. More than 100 kids now have tested positive from this prom. And, you know, I asked folks, was that a mistake to hold prom 
um, and to let these kids not wear masks at the prom. I guess masks were recommended, but most of the kids didn't wear them. And everybody I've talked to has said, yeah, you know, proms need to happen. These kids haven't been able to do this, have these dances, these like really key like rites of passage for two years. And they're recognizing that those really matter. And and they're also recognizing, you know, these kids are highly vaccinated. Most of them are vaccinated. Kids, teenagers in general, aren't really prone to having severe outcomes. And so that gets calculated. You know, it's part of the calculation is, you know, if I decide to go to an event recognizing I might get COVID there, how am I going to feel about that? Am I going to regret having gone to that event if I get COVID? Or is this event important enough to me that I'm sort of ready to risk potentially becoming infected. And certainly very different from some tragic events earlier in the coronavirus where you might see multiple deaths coming out of, of a super spreader event. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing is not only would you potentially see deaths coming from an event, but the real big concern was that one super spreader event could seed then outbreaks all over the place, right? So if you had, you know, a lot of kids infected, and this is still a concern, like if you get a lot of kids infected at a prom, you know, one of them could then take that home to a vulnerable family member. So, you know, that that is another calculation that needs to come into play. But in the past, when we didn't have all of these protective measures um, that we could lean on, then, yeah, you could have really awful, terrible outcomes from from an event like that. What about uh, parents of young children, other people who who can't get vaccinated and it's it's a frustrating time? It's there's still a lot of questions out there. What should they be doing? They're to me kind of in a category of they they really are faced with having to make some some difficult decisions. And that's going to depend a lot on a family's own risk benefit analysis. And and parents have there's a, a lot of gradation in how risk tolerant or risk averse parents are with with young children, right? Like some are pretty low key and and will allow just about anything. And some are very, you know, hyper aware of of protecting their kids. And, and it's all over the place. And I think that has to come into play. So if you're somebody who really, really does not under all situations want your toddler to be exposed, you know, you might be deciding now, I'm not going to take my kid to a grocery store at all. Like, you know, maybe you were willing to take your kid shopping with you a month ago, and now you're deciding that's not okay. Maybe your preschool has stopped requiring masks from kids, and you want to raise that issue again and ask if the school will start, you know, making the kids wear masks. So, I mean, I think that there's there's all kinds of things people can take into consideration. Playdates are a big thing. Playdates are really important. Nearly everyone I talk to says these kids need to have those interactions. But, you know, you can very easily have that playdate be in a park. You can have it very easily. Even if you decide to have it at your home, you can take precautions like opening all the windows, opening doors. Maybe instead of having five little kids over at your house, you just make it two or three little kids. So, you know, it's all those sort of small calculations that that they build up. So any sort of any sort of decisions you make, everything has some some level of protection to it. And, and they all are helpful. One more thing I want to ask you, Aaron, is about your recent work looking at school vaccine mandates. They've been a big issue, but they've slowed down. They've they've proven to be more difficult than anticipated. And, and it's not clear when we will have them, if we will have them. What's going on? It was kind of interesting to me last fall, and this has started really before even vaccines had been authorized for the five to 11 year old age group. But a lot of schools, I think, shortly after reopening in the fall, 
a lot of districts put in place vaccine mandates. And, and basically, these mandates said that starting as early as January of this year, but some of them there was there was variation there, that they were going to, you know, mandate that all kids be vaccinated before coming to school, to be allowed to come to school. Um, and then, of course, the state, um, Governor Newsom sort of famously, he launched a state mandate that was to take to take effect this summer that was going to require all all K through 12 students be vaccinated. And pretty quickly, those mandates were delayed or postponed. Certainly by by January, I, you know, all of them had had basically been delayed or put off. Some of them have kind of quietly dropped them completely. And of course, the state now has pushed back its its mandate, says that it won't um, put be put in place until July 2023 at the very earliest. There was also some legislation that had been talked about to add uh, COVID vaccines to sort of the regular vaccination schedule for kids. That also got withdrawn, so that's not on the table. And I think the main issue here, I mean, ironically, it, it sounds kind of funny to say it this way, but one of the big strikes against mandates so far has been how few parents got their kids vaccinated. So it's been relatively low overall. About a third of of the little kids, the 5 to 11-year-olds, are, are fully vaccinated. And the thinking is that mandates don't work very well when there's like very little support for the thing you're trying to mandate. So if you have 60 to 70 percent of parents that haven't vaccinated and so presumably don't want to be forced to vaccinate their kids, that's going to be a huge political endeavor to try to get them on board with the mandate. Like that's it's going to get ugly and it's going to be an enforcement issue, right? Like you don't want to in your school district, imagine having to be the principal or the the district, you know, administrator who has to tell 60 percent of your parents to vaccinate their kids when they don't want to. You know, no one really wants to be put in that position and they don't want to not they don't want to be turning away 60 percent of their kids. On the other hand, don't you miss an opportunity that perhaps a lot of those parents will vaccinate if they must do it to get their kids into school? Yeah, I mean, for sure. But it's that's just that's just a lot. <laughs> it's just a lot. And I think the thinking that came that, that they came to is there is clearly a lot more work that can and should be done to to use gentler strategies to get parents on board. And the thinking is that, you know, once these vaccines, you know, are approved, like fully approved, um, which will take probably another six months to a year. I mean, there could be a lot of parents that come around in that time period. It may just be that they kind of need to take their time. And so I think the hope is that if there's like a really concerted effort and just a little more time for parents to get comfortable, that you'll get more you know, of that that natural sort of uptake, parents just sort of getting on board. And by the time, you know, we need a mandate or a mandate does get put in place, if we can get those rates up to more like 70 or 80 percent and we just need to get those final few on board, that that's when a mandate might make more sense. All right, Aaron, let's leave it there. Hopefully the next time we talk, we have come up with a word that we can use besides pandemic, perhaps. Is that too hopeful? Uh, no, I don't think that's well. OK, I take it back. I don't know. Post pandemic. Post pandemic. I mean, I've already kind of referred to post pandemic. I think that we'll start using that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's look forward to it. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Damien. Thanks to my guest today. She's Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs> 